Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. Matthew 4, verses 17 through 20. Really just going to try to drill down deep, look at this passage briefly tonight. And here's really the idea we're trying to think about together tonight is responding to Christ, responding to the gospel. I know you all have been doing this series. And so we're going to look at a place in the Bible when Jesus Christ was walking around physically on earth of some people responding to him and his message. So let me just read it briefly and then we'll talk about it. Matthew chapter 4, start in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now, this is a fairly famous passage. Some of you may have heard it before. And some of you may be like me. You grew up in church, going to church. Sunday school, Bible studies, things like that, and hearing the Bible taught. And I remember this passage always seemed a little weird to me. And here's what I mean. It seems kind of like magical. Because the way it reads, and especially even if you read the whole book of Matthew, if you started in chapter 1, the way it's presented to us is almost like Jesus just one day at age 30 starts preaching, telling people, hey, repent, believe, kingdom of God's here. And then he sees some fishermen over there, and he's like, hey, you guys, come follow me. And they're like, okay. They drop their nets, they start following him. And they don't even really know who he is. almost like a magic trick or something. You know, like something out of Star Wars. Like he used a force on them, and that's why they followed him. But what you have to realize is there's four different guys that have written parts of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell us a lot about the life of Christ. But they do it in a fairly short amount of time. Okay? And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all basically tell us mostly the same stuff. And John probably wrote his gospel, story of the life of Jesus, about 30 years after the other three guys had written. And part of what John does is he fills in some of the gaps. He says, I'm not going to cover all the same material. I'm going to tell you some of the stuff that those guys left out, not because they would have disagreed, just because there wasn't space to tell everything. And if you're interested, you can go read John chapter 1, Uh, through chapter 4, and here's what you'll see, is that when Jesus first really started his ministry, and and one kind of Bible teacher that I was reading said it this way, Jesus had about a three-year ministry, and the first year was really like a year of obscurity. It was kind of like he was just doing stuff with small groups. He was kind of hidden. And you had this famous prophet, a guy named John the Baptist, and he was preaching and saying, the Messiah is coming, the anointed one is coming. Jesus is coming. And then Jesus came and John the Baptist said, that's him. And some of John the Baptist's followers, and some of them were like Andrew, started following Jesus. And so we don't know exactly, but probably for months, Peter and Andrew, and then they had two business partners, a guy named John and James, had followed Jesus around. I mean, think about it. Seasonal, I mean, excuse me, fishing is a seasonal profession. It was back then. It still is today at some level. And they were devout religious Jews. They'd grown up on the Old Testament. They were looking for the Messiah. They hear the Messiah is here. And they had taken off a long time, maybe weeks, maybe months, we don't know, to follow Jesus around. You've probably heard of Jesus' most, you know, first miracle. He went to a wedding. They ran out of wine. And Jesus said, I got this. It's not exactly what he said, but basically. And he turned water into wine. These four guys, they were there. They saw that. Okay? They saw him heal people. 
They saw him preaching. They saw him loving on people. Okay? They saw him confronting religious leaders and teaching in ways they didn't understand. So they had already had a lot of experience with Jesus. When he came and said, follow me, they knew who he was. They understood what he was about. They understood at least enough of his message to commit their life to him. Now, again, roughly 2,000 years ago, in this area of the world, if you were a devout Jew and you wanted to get like really super serious about your spiritual life, you would try to find a rabbi, it's a Jewish word for a teacher, and you would kind of devote your life to him. And you'd say, I'm going to follow you around. I'm going to listen to everything you say. I'm going to be devoted to your life and to your teaching. And so when Jesus came and said, come follow me, they realized here is a Jewish teacher. Not less than that. He's much more than that. And he's calling us to leave everything and follow him. And they instantly do it. They drop their nets, they leave their business, they leave their boats, they even leave their family at least temporarily to go and start following Jesus. And so we want to drill down and say, okay, what's the principle here that we can learn for ourselves about what it really means to respond to Christ in the right way? And we're just going to think about three words, okay? Come, follow me. Because that's basically what Jesus told them is, come, follow me. And they did it. So the first word is come. And I just want us to think about this. When Jesus says this, come, it's important that we understand this. It was not an invitation. It was not like Jesus just said, hey guys, if you like me, if you like what I've been teaching, I'm inviting you to come. It was a command. It was, I am the Jewish Messiah. I'm actually God in the flesh. And I'm here commanding you, follow me. There's a verse, write this down, go look at it later. We won't look at it now for the sake of time. But Acts chapter 17 verse 30, it's after Jesus has resurrected from the dead and he's ascended into heaven. And there's this famous guy you've probably heard of named Paul and he's out preaching. And Paul actually goes to Athens, which was kind of the philosophical, intellectual capital of the world. It'd be like going to Oxford or Harvard today. And Paul is preaching there, and one of the things he says is, God commands men everywhere to repent. It's not, an, it's not like, well, if you feel like it or not. It's a command. God made us. He owns us. And he says, come, follow me. Now, if you know much about the Bible and Jesus, this shouldn't be terrifying to us. Because in one sense, it's the greatest command ever. Because there's another place in Matthew chapter 11. In fact, let me just flip over there and read this. Matthew chapter 11, another famous passage you may be familiar with. Just listen to this. Matthew chapter 11, starting verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And part of what Jesus is saying there is, listen, you can't save yourself. You can't fix your own life. You can't lead your own life in a good enough way to get to the destination you really want to go. But if you come follow me, I can get you there. I can give you rest. I can give you salvation. I can give you the deepest desires of your soul, and I will if you'll come follow me. I won't give you all your surface-level desires. I will give you the deepest desires of your heart. Now, did you notice he says, take my yoke upon you. Now, for most of us, that's kind of a weird word. We're like, what in the heck does that mean, right? We talk about sometimes guys being yoked up like they're strong or something. Like, what is Jesus talking about? But this was a farming community. 
agricultural. And a yoke was something they used a lot of times to take two ox that were going to plow a field, and the yoke would go around both of their necks. And oftentimes what they would do is they would get an older, stronger, more experienced like daddy ox, and maybe a young, strong, up-and-coming, strapping son, but immature and inexperienced ox, and they would yoke them together. And the reason was the old daddy ox, he'd been plowing fields for a long time. He knew the routine. The farmer didn't even hardly have to hit him or say anything to him. And if the young baby ox would just stick close to daddy and walk in the same direction and the same pace that the daddy ox was walking, the baby ox basically wouldn't even feel any of the burden of the yoke. Does that make sense? I mean, just imagine, Rob mentioned, I had a daughter. And imagine if I had up here my 15-year-old daughter. She's probably, probably strong for her age, but push comes to shove. I can bench press more than her, okay? And we also had like a 100-pound kettlebell. And I said, hey, baby, me and you are going to carry this 100-pound kettlebell together up these stairs. And I said, listen, we're going to both put one hand on it, and if you'll just stay really close to me, and you'll walk at the same pace and the same direction, you won't really hardly feel any of the weight because I'll be basically carrying all of it. Does that make sense? But if she starts to try to go in a different direction or in a different pace or something, she's going to feel more and more of the weight. Does that make sense? And baby ox... If he doesn't keep up with daddy ox, if he tries to deviate a little bit, or he tries to go a little bit too fast or a little bit too slow, the yoke was going to pinch his neck and get his attention and teach him, no, 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 trust the daddy ox. Keep in step with the daddy ox. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, if you'll come to me, if you'll follow me, if you'll trust me, if you'll submit to me, if you'll surrender to me, my commands won't feel burdensome. You know, there, there's a verse in 1 John that says His commands are not burdensome. As best I understand my own heart, I've been a Christian for over 30 years. I've been really trying to walk with Christ for 30 years. I mean, I've been in full-time ministry for over 23 years, right? It's like I have, to, I have to act like a Christian or I get fired, right? And I'll just be honest with you. There's lots of times still that God's commands still feel burdensome to me. Anybody can agree with that? Right? Now, why is that? There's nothing wrong with God. There's nothing wrong with His commands and His Word. There's something wrong with my sinful, stubborn, stupid, selfish heart. Does that make sense? That sometimes I keep wanting to go back and do the same sinful stuff that screwed me up last time. There's a proverb in the Old Testament that says, As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool to his folly. That makes sense, doesn't it? Anybody ever seen a dog go back and eat their throw up? Right? We have two cats right now, and I've seen one of the cats throw up and the other cat come and try to eat it. But let's don't get off on that. Let's just think about the dog. The dog obviously ate something that made him sick. So sick that he vomited. Now, I bet we've all thrown up before. Sometimes it's a needful process to get something unhealthy out of our body. But I don't think anybody enjoys throwing up, right? I mean, it's usually painful. But this dog is so stupid, he's like, I ate that, it made me sick, I threw up, I didn't like it, but I'm still hungry, and there's a pile of something over there, why don't I go try to eat it again? Now let's that's insanity. It's moronic. If a human being did that, you'd say, I think you're nuts. Let's go check you in at the psych ward. 
What the Bible is saying is every time that we go back to the same old sin, we're doing the same thing. And to the degree we can start saying, I don't trust myself. I don't trust my own wisdom. I don't trust myself to lead myself. I want to get yoked up with Jesus. And I want to walk as close as I can with Him, in line with Him, in step with Him. More and more we'll say, His commands make sense. His commands are good for me. His commands are blessing me. His commands do make me happy. His commands do make me fruitful. His commands do give me life and life to the full. Listen, it'll never be perfect in this life. But you can experience more and more of that reality and that joy. I dropped my notes. Let's hope they're still in order. I may just start. Who knows what I'll say. All right. So point one, Jesus says, come. It's not an invitation. It's a command. Come yoke up with me. But the word he uses here in Matthew chapter 4 is this, follow. Listen, I think at this point probably a lot of you are like, yeah, this, okay, that makes sense. Come to Jesus. He's gentle. He's lowly. He's patient. He's tender. He's kind. He's going to help me. He's going to take my burdens away. Okay, I like that whole come thing. But you start to think about follow and the implications of that. And there's a, there's a story in the Old Testament. Okay, and for the sake of time, I won't read it. If you want to read it, you can read it later. I'll give you 2 Kings chapter 6, start in verse 18, go all the way to verse 23. But the key verse is verse 19. And there was this famous prophet named Elisha. And Elisha was on the side of Israel. And Syria, back then, was a bad guy, even way back then, all right? And they were always trying to attack Israel. But Elisha was this prophet who had supernatural insight. And he could go tell the king of Israel, hey, the Syrian army is coming. And Israel kept winning the battles. And finally, the king of Syria figured out what was going on. So the king of Syria sent his army, like a whole army, to come and arrest Elisha. And capture him. But Elisha came out and said, you're not going to arrest me. I'm the prophet of God. And he made the whole army blind. And just imagine this, right? Let's just say all of you actually were an army. Everybody in the crowd, you're the army. okay? And I get to be prophet Elisha. All right? That's what happens when you hold the microphone. I get to be the good guy, prophet Elisha. Y'all are the bad guys, the army that comes to get me. And y'all are all here. It's like y'all got me outnumbered. But then I said, boop, you're all blind. <laughs> and then you know what Elisha does? He says, come follow me. Now listen, imagine you've lived your whole life. I don't know all of you personally, but I'm just going to take a guess. Everybody's sitting here. You're maybe roughly 20 years old, and your whole life, your eyes have functioned. And they just quit working totally about five seconds ago. I mean, total blackness. How panicked do you think you would be? How fearful do you think you would be? And oh, by the way, you're in enemy territory. Because you're trying to go capture one of your enemies. And that very enemy, who just made you blind, says, come follow me. What other choice do you have? Listen, this is a move of desperation. To follow Christ is to admit, I have no other hope. There's a place where, uh, in John chapter 6, go read this one. It's a really long passage. Don't read the whole thing. Just read like the last 10 verses, maybe verses 60 into verse 70. And Jesus kind of starts talking like he does sometimes. It's such a high divine level that even his closest followers, like Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they don't really understand what he's saying. And at this point, Jesus probably had thousands of people following him. 
But most of the crowds are basically saying, we think this guy's nuts, and they all leave. And it seems like there's only 12 guys left, the 12 disciples. And Jesus just looks at him and says, you want to leave too? And Peter speaks for the group and he says, where else will we go? You have the words of life. You understand what he's saying? He's basically saying, here's kind of the Olin translation. He's basically saying, Jesus, we've got to be honest, uh, you kind of sound crazy to us too. And yet we've been hanging out with you long enough to know you're the real deal. So even when we don't understand what you say, even when we do understand what you say and we don't like it, we trust you. There's no other hope elsewhere. We're desperate. We're hungry. We'll do whatever you say. We're sticking with you. That's the kind of followership Jesus is calling for. He's not just calling for best buddies and friends. He is calling for absolute, full-throated commitment and surrender. Let me just give you two illustrations that I think will make this clear. Maybe three. We're using a military illustration here. Okay, let's imagine. Imagine there was some foreign king, foreign president that came and invaded America. And as the troops were kind of rolling across America right now, they were just dominating us. We were losing at every turn. And we hear the troops are coming into Birmingham. And up until this point, they've just been executing citizens like crazy. But for whatever reason, this foreign president, foreign king, decides to kind of offer amnesty. So he puts it out across the airwaves. If you will beg for mercy, American citizens, if you will beg for mercy and swear loyalty to me, I'll forgive you. I'll let you live. And right as we hear that message, some of the troops walk into the room. And we're like, man, I don't want to die. I want to live. So we, we get on our knees and we say, mercy! We just heard what your president said. Give us mercy! And, 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 and forgive us. Don't execute us. And we'll be loyal to you. And the troops say, okay. You're accepted. Inherent in that plea for mercy and that plea that we're going to be loyal is we're basically saying we're going to serve you the rest of our life, right? You can't get up after that and say, man, forget you people. I'm an American. I'm independent. They'll shoot you. What you just said is I'm committed. I'm loyal. I'm surrendered. When Jesus says come follow me, that's what he wants. Yeah, beg mercy and I'll give it to you. But when you beg mercy, you're also saying you're committed to me forever. And that's kind of a dark illustration. All right, let me give a little bit more happy, hopeful one. I bet, again, I don't know most of you in here, but I bet most of you want to be married one day. Okay? I've been married by 23 years. Love being married. Okay, second to being a Christian is the best part of my life. But just like uh, being a Christian is hard, second to being a Christian, being married is the second hardest thing in my whole life. And here's the thing. When you get married and you go to church or the courthouse or wherever you go and you stand before your mom and your dad and the family and the preacher, or the, whatever, the judge, and you say, you know, all the vows, till death do us part, right? In sickness and in health, for better or worse. What you're saying is, I'm all in. I love you, I trust you, and I'm saying yes to you, but I'm also basically saying no to about three and a half billion other people. Right? If I had gone to my wife and said, I love you, you're the greatest woman in the world, I want to marry you. Now, I do have this one other girlfriend over here named Anna. I don't want to marry Anna. 
I would like to sleep with her like every once in a while. Now, I mean, mainly I want to sleep with you. Mainly I want to live with you. Mainly I want to go on vacations with you. Mainly I want to eat with you. I want to go on dates with you, the whole nine yards. But maybe like once a month. I just want to kind of keep Ann on the side. Anybody know a woman say, yeah, that sounds fine. You know, flip it. If a woman tried to say that to a man, I'd love to marry you. I'd love to take your last name. And I want like the traditional marriage. I want you to work and pay all the bills and I'm going to be stay-at-home mom. But I do have this old boyfriend named Bob. I'd like to keep Bob around every once in a while. Anybody know a man that would take a woman like that? And Christ won't take a follower like that. Now listen, it's important. I can honestly say 23 years, I have been in general a faithful husband to my wife. Have I been a sinlessly perfect husband? No, heck no. But my commitment to her, it's not perfect, but it is sincere and genuine. You understand the difference? Nobody is calling you, and Christ is not calling you to make a perfect commitment to Him. He knows how broken and fragile and weak and stupid and messed up we are. But He does want a sincere commitment, a genuine commitment. He doesn't want like, I want to commit to you, Jesus, but I still want to hang on the pot. You can't have any pet sin. I'm all in, Jesus. Just a little bit of porn on the side. Full surrender. Yes, you'll stumble. Yes, you'll fall. Yes, you will weave. But the sincerity and genuineness of your heart has to be, I'm all in. One Bible teacher said this, the commitment to his person turns into obeying his teaching. Okay, let me say one more thought about this. Most of you have never met my wife, okay? The staff have, you know, Rob and Jacob and Caroline. So if I, if I was up here and I was just talking about my wife like I am right now, I love my wife, she's my best friend, I'm so committed to her, I'm so loyal to her. And then one of you said, well, describe your wife. And I said, well, you know, she's a giant, she's nine and a half feet tall, uh, she's bald, she doesn't have any hair, uh, she weighs about 400 pounds, she used to play linebacker uh, in college, she's a cyclops. You know, you'd say, Rob would say, oh, what are you talking about? I've met your wife. She doesn't look like that. Here's what I'm saying. It's very popular in our day and age to try to make Jesus in our own image. So, oh yeah, I'm committed to Jesus. And then maybe you read a verse about something Jesus says that you don't like. You're like, oh yeah, that's not my Jesus. Right? Anybody ever seen the uh, Talladega Nights movie, Ricky Bobby? Okay. I mean, I, I almost hesitate to quote this because it's, it's probably borderline blaspheme, okay? But it, 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 unfortunately, it did make me laugh at some points. But it is a pretty good picture of what our culture does. Do you remember where they're sitting around the dinner table and Will Ferrell wants to pray to baby Jesus? And then like his buddy, I don't even remember that guy's name, and he's like, I like to imagine Jesus at a Leonard Skinner concert, you know, in a tuxedo. We, we do the same kind of things. I like to imagine Jesus like this that would never send anybody to hell. When you say, I'm going to follow Jesus, you have to say, I am going to follow the Jesus of the Bible. The real Jesus, not the made-up Jesus of your own liking. Come follow me. Okay, third point. Some of you have been tracking with me probably up until this point, but you're like, you know what? It got a little too harsh. It got a little too real. All this stuff about surrender repentance, loyalty, commitment. 
You're like, I can barely commit to a dating relationship. I can barely commit to my classes. I mean, we're halfway through the semester, and I'm thinking about dropping half my classes. And you're asking me to make this, like, lifelong, eternal commitment to the God of the universe that's going to radically transform every aspect of my life? No, I already said, I'm not asking you. Jesus is commanding you to. But get the last word, guys. Come follow me. Jesus is not a generic, distant dictator or tyrant. He's a loving, merciful, kind Savior and best friend. He's wiser than all of us are put together. He knows what's best for us. He's more powerful than we all are put together. He can control the future. And He is more loving and good than we can even imagine. He wants what is best for each one of us more than we even want it for ourselves. And that's what he's calling you into that kind of intimate relationship. There's another verse in John chapter 17, verse 3, where Jesus, Jesus, the Son, God the Son, is praying to God the Father, and he says, this is eternal life. The guy mentioned it in the video. That they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life is not just about living forever. I got a side note for you. In some sense, everybody's going to live forever. It's just a matter of where. Eternal life is more about the quality of life, real life, a spiritually vital life where you're communing with the creator and lover and savior and sustainer of your soul. And it starts now when you put your faith in him. You don't have to wait for heaven. It's like a little foretaste of glory divine. And it's worth it. It's personal. It's intimate. It's best friendship. Okay? Come follow me. Listen to this. Matthew chapter 10 verse 38. Matthew chapter 10 verse 38. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew chapter 16 Verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. When Jesus talked about, you know, when we talk about the cross today, we talk about cool tattoo art, a nice new pair of silver earrings, a cool looking gold cross. And I'm not against all that. If you've got to get some kind of tattoo on your body, get the cross, right? What's better? But when Jesus talked about a cross 2,000 years ago, it hadn't become a cool religious symbol. You realize what it was for them? It was the most torturous way that the Romans could invent to punish and hurt and kill their enemies. It would be the equivalent of if I were to say to you today, hey, come follow me. And if you want to follow me, make sure you sit in your electric chair and come follow me in your electric You said, this dude's a nut job. But what Jesus was saying is, you have to die to yourself. You have to die to yourself if you really want to follow me. And there will be a cost. There will be a surrender. There will be the yoke pinching on our neck sometimes. So let me just bring, read two quotes that I think are going to be up here. Um, the first is by C.S. Lewis. You've probably heard him. And he says, those who 
can say, like St. Paul, that for them to live is Christ. These people have got rid of the tiresome business of adjusting the rival claims of self and God by the simple expedient of rejecting the claims of the self altogether. The old egotistic will has been turned around, reconditioned, and made into a new thing. The will of Christ no longer limits theirs. It is theirs. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying, and some of you that are Christians, you understand, there's a, there's a battle at times for Christians, right? Between, well, I know God wants me to do this, but I kind of want to do this. And he says, well, you really want to be a mature Christian? What do you do is you just say, you quit having any selfish desires. And you learn to say, whatever God wants, that's what I want. Now, it's easier said than done. But I bet most of us have had at least a little taste of it in life. Okay? I want you to think about the time in your life where you were in love, or at least you thought you were in love, right? It might have been puppy love, seventh grade on the swing set. Okay? But the time that you thought you were the most like in love with somebody, wasn't there a sense that you were so enamored that you were kind of like, whatever makes that person happy, that's what I want to do. If they want to go to a concert tonight, I want to go to a concert. If they want to go eat pizza tonight, I want to go eat pizza. If they want to go out laying, looking at stars, stargazing, I think that's weird, but all of a sudden, now I like it. Right? I never used to write poetry, now I'm writing poetry to this girl. Because I, You understand what I'm saying? When you really fall in love, your selfish desires start to go down because you get enraptured by the desires of the other person. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I love you. I proved it with my life and my death and my resurrection in your place. And I'm calling you to love me. He's the perfect spouse. One author said this way, collapse into Christ as your life. Embrace the free fall of total abandon to his purpose in your life. And there's an old author named John Calvin, and he said it this way. I think we've got this quote up here too. We, he's talking about Christians. We are not our own. Let not reason nor our will therefore sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us therefore not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own. Insofar as we can, let us therefore forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, we are God's. Let us therefore live for Him and die for Him. We are God's. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward Him as our only lawful goal. Now, that sounds great and high and lofty, but let's be honest, the Christians in here as well, including myself, I know that's the way it's supposed to be. I'm the one up here teaching it, but I don't always feel that way. And then there's another author I read, and he said it this way. It's real simple. He said, if we're truly going to repent and follow Jesus, we have to really believe that Jesus' will for us is better than our own will. Jesus' plan for us is really better than our own plan. And oftentimes that is a step of faith. But we've got to trust Him. Okay? Because, listen, look at the life of Christ. He went through a lot of hard times. I mean... Even Jesus, in his humanity, walking around on planet Earth, had to wrestle with this same thing at some level. Do you remember the story the night before he got arrested and went to the cross? 
He's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying to his father. You remember what he was saying? Father, I, I mean, again, this is kind of a layman's translation definition, but essentially this is what he was saying. Father, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to die. I don't want to have to feel your wrath, your hell and damnation dumped out on me for all those people. I don't want to do it. Is there any other way? Please. But do you remember how the prayer ended? Yet not my will but thine. And if you're really going to be a genuine Christian, it means you say, I'm going to follow Jesus. And when he asks me to do something that I don't like, you can be honest with him. That's what's beautiful. You can be honest. I don't want to do this. I don't like it. Is there any other way? But at the end of the day, you're supposed to say, and I'm supposed to say, not my will but thine. I'll obey you even if it kills me. But here's the one last thought. We're done. And, and this is the most glorious thought of all. There's one thing for sure that if we trust in Christ and follow him, that we know he will never ask us to do. And that is, he will never ask us to go to hell and suffer the wrath of his father for our own sins because he already did it for us. And guys, that ought to be the reality that brings home to our heart and souls his amazing love so that we say, okay, I'll trust him. I'll follow him. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We're so unworthy of you. I pray for those of us here tonight that by your grace are true believers, that we would trust you more, we would repent more, we would surrender more, we would grow up in this grace and our following of you. Lord, and I pray for any hearing this that have not yet fully trusted in you, have not fully for the first time surrendered to you, would you give them the grace, would you give them the mercy, would you give them the ability to do so? We pray this all only in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org. 